Hey everyone, it's Caleb. Thank you so much for listening to The Caleb Mason Show. I'm so grateful that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day with me uh, here and listening to this podcast. And today I have a great guest for you. Today I'm talking with Stephanie Johnson, Dr. Stephanie Johnson, who is an associate professor of management at the Leeds School of Business at the University of Colorado Boulder. And she's recently come out with a book, which is what Uh, pretty much our conversation is going to be about. And the book is called Inclusify, the power of uniqueness and belonging to build innovative teams. And I'm really looking forward to this as I was going through the book. I've highly enjoyed it. It is incredibly practical as well, which which is something that I think is very much needed as well whenever it comes to uh, diversifying our teams and our organizations. And really, that's what we're going to talk about today about her book, uh, Inclusify. Now, I do want to let you know that the music that you're listening to is brought to you by my good friend, Sam Massey. And if you're listening to this music and you're like, wow, I love this music, hit up Sam for any audio, or he also does video as well. So if you have any audio or visual or video needs, he is the person to talk with about any of those things. Now, as I mentioned, today I'm talking with Dr. Stephanie Johnson, and here is our conversation. Well, Stephanie, it's so great to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, and and you've come out with this book called Inclusify, and the subtitle is The Power of Uniqueness and Belonging to Build Innovative Teams. And, and before we get into the content of the book, I'm just always curious whenever I talk with different authors of like, what was the story or what was the thing that made you want to write this book? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, So I'm a college professor at the University of Colorado, and I do research on leadership and diversity. So wherever those two things intersect, if you're a leader, how do you create more diverse environments? If you're a leader of color, how do people view you? Um, And I think probably over the last four years, as I was doing research and interviews, I really started to find that more leaders were well-intentioned than I would have ever thought, like many, many people are trying to do this well, or recognizing that they're doing a bad job, or they could do better, but they don't really, they didn't know what to do. And so I give lots of presentations and work with companies. And I thought maybe it's just more effective to actually put all this information together in a guide that leaders can use to help them, you know, put their good intentions into good actions. And so where, where did the term uh, inclusify Come. <laughs> yeah, it's a made-up word. Yeah. Uh, you know, so the word usually is you say diversity and inclusion, right? And um, so I guess 
inclusion, the action would be to include. And I think that for most people, the view of including someone is like letting them join, right? Like, I'm going to include you um, on this team. But inclusifying, what I was trying to convey is that it's more of an action and it requires more effort and more intention. It's not just letting people be there, but it's creating a team where everyone can contribute equally. What, uh, like, I don't think, or maybe maybe there is someone uh, who who is against that, but I think genuinely, most most people are for that. Most people are like, hey, I want to see at the table for everybody. I want everybody represented. I want to have equal voices for everybody. Um, what are the things that just get in the way of that that people may not even recognize on like a day to day basis? Yeah, so you're right. I think that that's kind of the point that it most people want to have inclusion. Everyone's probably been excluded at some point or another, like even if you have to think back to like bad junior high memories, probably we all have those situations. And I don't think anyone would want to do that, but you just may not know, like you said, what you're doing. And so some of the things are um, leaders who really try to create a strong, cohesive culture that they're actually aiming for inclusion, I think, or belonging, right? Like everyone fits together. But in doing that, you're forcing everyone to assimilate or fit in if you're like trying to make everyone the same. Um, and then some people just by definition will never really feel included then because they're only included or they only belong if they cover or change in some way. Mm -hmm. So that's one. Have you ever experienced that? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, like I, I remember growing up yeah, uh, even just on the play, even just on the playground and everything. And I remember being a part of this uh, group that was like, "Hey, if you don't swear, then you're not a part of our group," <laughs> and everything. But yeah, I, I totally relate to. Um, obviously, that's just a small example for for kids. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I think it does start small, and then it just goes throughout the rest of our organizations and stuff. And even as we continue to grow as well. Yeah, absolutely. So there's that's one extreme. Um, then other leaders were trying to be inclusive by just focusing on meritocracy. So they say, I don't care what your race or color or gender, I just want to hire the best person for the job. Mm-hmm. And so that might be more of like including, right? Like I'll I'll hire you if you're the best person for the job. Yeah. But it's not actually making them feel, making people feel included. And what we know about meritocracy is um, one, we're terrible at assessing merit. Like who is that best person for the job, right? Like we don't even usually have specific criteria. Instead, we look at someone and then backfill the criteria to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so those leaders were trying to be fair, but what we find is when you tell leaders to focus on a meritocracy, they actually are more sexist and racist than they otherwise would have been. So by dichotomizing meritocracy and diversity, people say, oh, it's meritocracy, I'm gonna hire the white guy. And if I focus on diversity, then I'll hire, you know, maybe the non-white guy. But there's like, it's a kind of loaded term. So I'm like totally against the term meritocracy, even though I think in it, at its core, like merit is important, but it doesn't account for things like um, different headwinds and tailwinds in people's life or different circumstances, or even looking at the best person for the job isn't always the best person for the team. 
right? Like everyone, if you have five people working together, you want them all to actually have slightly different skills, not just replicate the same person five times. And like, just as you're saying that it's, it, I don't know if you're just saying it in a fresh way or whatever it is, but I'm just listening to it and it's like, holy cow. Like that's, I think that's, that's something that just seems so counterintuitive because you want to hire the best person for the job. Um, but just what you were saying, they may not be the best person for the team. Can, can you talk a little bit more about um, just kind of that, like just that dynamic and everything? Because I feel like it's something that, um, that may not get a lot of airtime. Yeah, absolutely. I use an analogy, um, a sports analogy. I've heard like, I find these are very effective, but if you were trying to say like, who's the best um, player on a team or the MVP, and I'll use the example of football, a lot of times I think it's the quarterback right? We, the quarterback gets paid the most and often ends up MVP. But if you're looking to create a football team, you wouldn't fill it with all quarterbacks. Because in fact, if the quarterback is um, coming up, one of the quarterbacks is coming up against alignment, they're going to get crushed, right? Because they tend to be mm -hmm. smaller than other players. So you want to pick people for different positions. And the reason is we all bring different skills and ability. And rather than replicating skills look i am really strong in statistics so if i hired a bunch of people to work with me who are statisticians it's like well you don't really need me instead it might be better to have someone who's a really good speaker or um, a really good presentation maker or whatever it might be and and we know there's a bunch of studies that show that having diversity of thought and you can slice this any way you want it could be People coming from different institutions, like different colleges, could be different race, different gender. Um, all of those things cause people to make better decisions. And so it, in fact, by having people who are slightly different, you end up with a better team overall. Yeah. How, how can you tell whether or not you are, like you're being inclusifying or not? Because like, I, I could just imagine the person who's going, well, hey, I, I have people who, whose uh, skin color is different than mine. I have people who have different beliefs than me. I have people who, have, um, who look different than me or, or so on and so forth. Um, but you may not be inclusifying. Like how, how can you tell whether or not you are being inclusifying? There's a quiz. <laughs> you can go to inclusifier, um, which is I-N-C-L-U-S-I-F-Y-E-R.com. And there's maybe it's 20 questions and it'll give you scores on yeah, whether or the extent to which you're an inclusifier or the end, the extent to which you might be the first um, archetype I talked about, which is a culture crusader, someone who's really good at creating belonging as long as everyone's the same, or a meritocracy manager, which is the last one that I mentioned. You're just focused on merit and you think that's going to do it. Or the last one um, is the white knight. And I can talk about white knights because they're kind of interesting or an optimist who's like an inclusifier in waiting. Like they want to do it. They have all the right information, but they're just not committing to like the action yet. Mm -hmm. can, can you talk a little bit more about the, the white knight approach that you talk about in your book? Yeah, absolutely. White knights were kind of my most interesting discovery in doing the research because I guess it's something I hadn't really thought of, but there were a lot of leaders who were actually trying really hard to create diversity and inclusion and we're trying to be champions for diversity and talked to really like talked about why everyone should be uh, champions but in kind of a way that didn't bring the whole team along so 
there's examples of, um, say, a white man chastising other white men for not doing enough and like berating them, like, you're not doing enough, you're exhibiting sexist behavior. And what I found is like, really, that never helped, right? Like, if you are trying to bring people with you, like threatening people or yelling at them is not the best approach. It's more of like showing people the positives or like, this is a different way of doing it. This could be better. This is aligned with our values. And this is what I want our team to look like. Not just like you're a bad person because people, I think they're, what we see in like brain scan studies is that when you attack someone in that way, their amygdala gets all excited and they go into this fight or flight mode and they actually are no longer comprehending anything you're saying. So they're just like turned off um, and you can't really get to them at that point. So the white knights were often doing this, right? And it was offending other uh, white men in their office, but also because they were talking about, you should do this because it's the right thing to do. They didn't necessarily do a great job at conveying their employees' competence. So say I'm a white knight promoting a woman. I'm like, you guys are sexist, you should promote her, we have no women. And that's not a really good argument for promoting, promoting a woman. Because everyone else says, well, we're not gonna promote her just because she's a woman. When in fact, she's probably super competent and the leader, the white knight could have been more of an inclusifier with a simple pivot of saying, we should promote this person because she's the most competent and go over those skills rather than also trying to like jab at the other people in their office. Yeah. And, and I, you touched on the, the optimist as well. And as I was going through the book that, I mean, I think that really there's just so much, it just seems like counterintuitive stuff that is incredibly helpful all throughout the book, which is why I highly suggest it uh, and encourage people to pick it up. Can you talk about the role of the, the optimist and why that isn't necessarily a good approach for us either? Yeah. So an optimist is a leader who believes in the power of uniqueness and belonging. They, they want to create an environment where everyone belongs and can fit together so you can still bring your whole self to work and all these good things, but they're not quite ready to commit to very specific actions to making it happen. And I feel like, in fact, this time in our history is just shows tons of examples of optimists and I won't call anyone out <laughs> um, from different companies, but companies that are saying things that are like, you know, we believe strongly uh, in equality and Black Lives Matter, and we're going to donate some money, but we're not going to really do anything else about it. And the reality is that just saying nice things doesn't create change. You actually have to do something. And that's where the optimists, in fact, were super easy to turn an optimist into an inclusifier because there's just like, here, do these four things and or pick three of them. And then you'll start to actually be taking concrete actions that will create change, not just hoping, um, well, it's, we're going to have equality sooner or later because 51% of college graduates are women. And yes, that's true, but I, economists estimate it'll take 170 years for that to happen. And that's a long time yeah. <laughs> where we could actually start moving on it sooner with just some very simple actions. Mm -hmm. why, why do you think we tend to uh, maybe default more towards the optimism route? Ah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I guess probably the biggest thing that I heard from people is they don't want to rock the boat. And so it's probably the fear of becoming a white knight 
or they've seen how that approach isn't always effective when they're like berating people or, um, you know, we've seen backlash from companies where they say, you know, we're going to promote more women and then we'll see um, in some cases white men suing the organization for inequality. And I think they're trying to avoid that. So they're kind of just trying to let me make it happen in a subtle way. No, like I'm not gonna commit to it outwardly. So I'm not gonna piss anyone off, but I'm gonna try to do it, you know? Yeah. And I think that's it. And then also, I mean, the other big thing that I really found is most of the leaders I worked with, and I would say even CEOs are like, they would do it if they just knew exactly what to do. But it's like, so improve diversity and inclusion. It's like, yeah, and solve global warming while you're at it, right? Like, how, where do you start? Just give me like three things to do and I'll do it. But if you just say like, diversity, like you're, you're not gonna solve all of society's problems within one company. And so I think the challenge looks so great that they, that a lot of times people just don't pick any action because there's so many actions you can do. So in the book, I try to break it down with, depending on your archetype, if you're a meritocracy manager or an optimist, it gives you um, like two or three specific actions that you can take. Just those are good for your type, for the type of person you are. And then if you want to keep going, you can flip through the other chapters and find other actions. But most journeys start with a single step, right? And I think sometimes that's what people need is just like one concrete action. Yeah. Well, one thing I want to ask you about, I was just having this conversation with, uh, with a friend of mine a few days ago, and I'm just curious to get your perspective on, because um, the, the other side that I've heard is sometimes, hey, we just want to show the action but we don't necessarily want to have the words. And I, and, and I was just curious, like, just to get, just to get your take on that. Like what, what role does words and speaking up have to play um, in, in addition to action as well? Yeah. So that was the other thing that came out of the optimists. There were a lot of them were lacking the words and then for their team, if, when I, so I would interview leaders and interview their team members when I asked them about the extent to which their leader cared about diversity and inclusion, they're like, you know, I don't know. Like they've never talked about it. And so the words are important. So like the two specific behaviors that optimists are supposed to adopt, the first two is publicly speaking about diversity and inclusion, explaining why it's core to your vision, mission values. And then two, I say set goals. And so those are two places to start. I think if you just did the action of setting goals, people may not see the authenticity and why you're doing it because you haven't given a background reason why that's important to you and um, why it should be important to everyone, right? Like this is, depending on the organization you work for, most organizations have something in their value statement about caring about their people. And so for leaders to explain how diversity and inclusion is part of our mission to serve our people or to serve our populations or whatever it is, it just helps people put the pieces together. So it doesn't seem like, oh my gosh, here's another random org change that I have to deal with. Yeah. Two, two of the components that you talk about whenever it comes to building a, a more um, inclusive or inclusifying your environment or your workplace is you talk about creating a sense of belonging while at the same time, like allowing like everybody's own natural uniqueness to flow out. 
as well. And I imagine that's got to create some tension at times. <laughs> and I'm just curious in, in the research and even just talking with people, how have you seen people handle that tension well? Yeah, I think that's the challenge. It's to be creating belonging. That's a great skill to have everyone feel committed and cohesive. Um, and that's easy enough to do if you don't have a bunch of different people, right? Because you can all have this kind of like shared identity. We are like, I'm a, I work at University of Colorado, go Buffs, right? Like that's simple. It's a simple statement. We're not like go Buffs and Buffs who also went to Rice, right? Like it's harder to do that. And the same thing with uniqueness. If you want everyone to be rogue, just like all these different types of people, everyone just be yourself, then it's hard to get cohesion because you don't have the like mission to focus around. So what do you do? Right. That's the, that's your question is starting with the belonging piece. Like you want people to feel cohesion, cohesion and commitment to your team. And at the same time, you need to overtly vocally share with them that although you're all a team, you want to hear the different perspectives and views and, even if you know one of the examples in the book our behaviors is to create a devil's advocate in each meeting and so you have one person maybe no one knows who it is but you're going to ask them to give a dissenting view and what that does is it allows everyone to give a dissenting view because once someone starts down that path you may not know if they're the devil's advocate or not but it opens the door to hear other perspectives and as long as the manager or leader at the table is positively reinforcing that, what you'll see is like people start to give different perspectives. You get fewer um, yes people, right? Just like everyone in agreement. Um, and at the same time, like other things like celebrating different cultures and recognizing different um, backgrounds, all those things can start to add the uniqueness pieces to the belonging. Yeah. And what, um, how, how do you, how do you balance between, uh, and, I, and I think you talked about it a little bit earlier, how do you balance between the, hey, this is the culture we want to create while also celebrating everybody's uniqueness in that? Yeah, well, hopefully the culture you want to create is an inclusive culture. Mm -hmm. And if that is true, then all, celebrating all these different backgrounds is part of that. So you make inclusion a core part of your culture and then it's a really natural fit and in fact uh, most of the companies that like i've done studies and i've created a database of all the different types of policies and practices that fortune 500 companies use for diversity and inclusion and one of the ones that best predicts inclusion outcomes diversity outcomes um, is having diversity and inclusion part of your core mission vision and values because if you do, then it's like, it makes sense that everything you're doing is serving that mission. And it's a strong culture and everyone's cohesive and in agreement around the fact that we're gonna be inclusive. Mm -hmm. what, what would you say to the person who's listening right now and they're like, I'm, I'm on board, I wanna do this, but I'm not on the executive team, I'm not the CEO, I'm, I'm just mm -hmm. like a low level, employee like what what can that what what would you say to that person like what can that person do to continue to inclusify yeah absolutely so i use a, a lot of ceo examples in the book 
mostly because they're highly visible and you know some of the very best leaders i saw were ceos it's like not surprising how they got there but in fact most the book is written for any manager and mm -hmm. even if you're not a manager there's things that individual contributors can do to create inclusion and some of that is um, demonstrating some of these behaviors without having a leadership title but like asking for different perspectives during meetings that's bringing out uniqueness um, one of the like hardest things that i saw is that a lot of employees felt really invisible at work like no one they didn't have uniqueness and they didn't have belonging no one saw them and they weren't part of the team and all of us have the power to stop people from feeling invisible just by making sure that we're interacting and greeting people and you know giving people the time of day it's a little harder over zoom <laughs> but in the office like there's people who you know may go the whole day with no one really talking to them and that person you can use that leadership of even if you're a subordinate to that person or a peer you can use leadership by making sure they don't feel that way and then i'll give you one last one uh, one of the lessons in the book i say is to use amplification this was something that staffers did in the obama white house um, because when you sit in meetings like any woman or person of color and woman of color would probably tell you that they've been in a situation where they give a great idea and no one says anything and then you give a good idea, Caleb, and everyone's like, oh, Caleb's idea is so great. And it was the exact same idea as, as the woman or a person of color, woman of color. And so that misattribution, or even later, they just attribute it to um, the more prototypical group member. I mean, this is like basic psychological process. We're gonna, if it's a great idea, we're going to attribute it to the person who looks most prototypical. Um, so you can use amplification, which is like, even if you're not a leader, you're sitting there at the table and when Caleb says, um, well, I think we should expand into online, um, you're, the person who's amplifying, doesn't matter if they're a leader, says, Caleb, I love that idea and it's great that it's the same idea that Stephanie just said. And so the fact that the two of you think that is true means that this is probably something we should talk about more. And so they're amplifying the um, other, the, and you don't have to be a woman or person of color to do it, but you're making sure that women and people of color and women of color are heard at the table as well. And can you just talk a little bit towards the, the feelings that you discovered that, um, and I mean, you've, you've touched on it some, I just want to dive into it a little bit more because I don't think it's always intuitive or natural for us to dive into people's feelings whenever they feel, um, they feel excluded or they feel like they have to fit in. What, what were some of the things that you just discovered, whether it be, um, or just people in the organization, what feelings and emotions did you discover? Yeah, I just mentioned the one invisibility. That was, to me, that's the hardest one. Like it, like pulls my heart a bit and people study invisibility in the workplace, but it's really the feeling that no one sees you and it actually causes huge psychological distress in people to just feel like no one cares that they're there. And most often we see it in like maybe shift workers. So you're working in the middle of the night and so maybe no one does see you or um, cleaning people who like are trying to avoid getting in your way. Um, and on both those groups, it still takes a huge psychological tool, right? But what was more surprising is to see it as a very common emotion experienced by women of color because no one's acknowledging their presence. They 
hired them. They let them in the building, but people don't talk to them. They don't know their name. They don't know anything about their background. Maybe they're fearful of having interactions with someone different than them. And those people experienced that similar psychological distress and then wanted to quit their jobs, basically. So that's invisibility. Um, the other one you mentioned is when you have to fit in. So if you have a culture crusader boss who says everyone um, has to fit the culture, I'm only going to hire culture fits and we're going to get rid of anyone who's not a culture fit, then people have to hide little aspects of themselves, which takes a lot of cognitive effort. It's like kind of exhausting to always keep bits of yourself back at work. Um, and then it creates other issues too. If there's, if you're, if you're covering and there's other people from your community who are not covering and they see you and they're like, why are you doing this? You can create um, tension there. And people at the end of the day, they want to kind of be themselves, maybe their best selves. Like you don't want, you don't want everything hanging out, right? <laughs> but at least um, being able to share kind of a little bit about who you are. Mm -hmm. And then the last one um, is in, if you can feel insular when you are the woman or um, like I am a Mexican woman and in my college for a long time, I was the only woman in my department. And so anytime there was a question about gender and less so about race, but about gender, people would say, well, how do women feel, Stephanie? And I'm like, I speak for all women <laughs> all of a sudden. And people of color experience that to a huge extent. I'm sure there's a lot of that going on right now um, mm -hmm. with Black Lives Matter, where it's like, well, can you, as the one black person here, can you solve all of our problems? And what that does is kind of creates, makes everyone, makes someone feel othered. Like I'm not part of the group and I don't belong. Instead, I'm this unique person that you guys are leaving uh, apart from the rest of the group. And then you feel like insular, isolated and alone. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm sure like there's a ton of pressure that probably comes with that as well, because like you, you recognize that, oh, they, they're expecting me to represent this entire people group and you're just one person. I know, I, th I feel like we see that a lot with, you know, maybe women who go into politics or become CEOs or high ranking um, members in an organization, they're like super visible. And so that if they do anything wrong, it's like not just their failure, but it's failure for all womankind. And that's like, it's a lot of pressure, right? For any one person to have, like it's scary enough to fail, period, right? Like I hugely fear failing, um, even though I'm, we shouldn't, we should be embracing failure, but no one wants to fail. But then when you have to fail for like, I fail for all women and Mexican people and first generation college students, it's like, I just can't fail for everyone. Mm -hmm. I, I want to flip it because we've talked a, a lot on, uh, or really we've talked a lot about the leader and about the team. And, and one of the things that I, I, I absolutely love is like, I'm listening to you and I'm going, it's not, it's not super complicated. It's not super, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the right word. Difficult is the one that comes to mind, but it just requires us getting over our fear of just reaching out the person who feels invisible of what you were saying of amplifying and 
what I'm, I'm just curious. I would just love your take. And I know that you've talked about it a little bit more, but just what the conversations were like with the CEOs of just overcoming that fear that they had to do, or even just the senior managers and everything. Yeah, for sure. You know, it was, I think it just requires that you do it. It's just like, just do it, right? Go try one, like set a a schedule and to say, I'm going to talk to one new person per day, right? Or I will amplify one person in this meeting. Um, And it, you know, may not be the norm, but especially right now when I think we're, I don't, I mean, I don't think it's just me, but I like, I feel super isolated. I think probably a lot of people feel really isolated because we are physically isolated, right? Um, Because of COVID. And so it may not be natural to do it. So that's why you have to be more intentional. So set your, put a reminder on your phone, you know, go talk to one person today. And then some of the leaders I saw who did a really great job of this, I think of um, Starbucks CEO, Kevin Johnson. Um, I interviewed him right when he came in as CEO of Starbucks and asked him about, he's very, very much inclusive, like set goals, you know, just, super focused on the benefits of having a more diverse and inclusive team. And one of the things he said is that he would, even before taking over as CEO, he would just go around the office and have conversations with different people to try to learn and understand their perspective, because that's what the culture of Starbucks is about, right? It's about um, the human experience and belonging and bringing people together. And so he tried to take that coffee shop feeling into the corporate office and just like have a coffee with someone and say, you know, tell me about, I don't know anything about your college experience or what sports you played or what your first job was or what your future jobs or aspirations are going to be. And it just breaks down barriers to do that. Yeah. What, what surprised you the most in in your research of this book? Maybe what's something that you entered with and you just completely changed your mind about? Uh, So I think it is, the idea that women don't support other women. You've probably seen this before, right? Like it's often in the media, women uh, are the hard, hardest on other women. And I never believed this was true because I haven't experienced that to the same extent, maybe because there weren't as many women, in, I don't know, in my field, but I, I love women. So I've always found that wasn't the case. And I thought it was kind of an urban legend that was created to blame women for their own like lack of progress. Um, and then for people of color, like I would say the same thing. I've like never met another Mexican woman or Mexican person who wouldn't, who's anti-Mexican people, right? Like it just seems, it seems bizarre to me. But when I was interviewing leaders, a few women and people of color talked about that very fact. And usually when they were talking about it, it was like something they did years ago, but now they wouldn't do it. And they, you know, they've come around or seen the error of their ways for one woman, she was after Me Too, the Me Too movement started. She was like, what am I doing? You know, like, um, I'm not being supportive of other women. And like, they're going through all this stuff and I'm not there for them and I'm going to switch it. And so those people, the women who did that, um, I call team players. And usually they're like culture crusaders. They're trying to uphold the culture, but they've kind of been like over time acculturated to act the same way as um, the other culture crusaders. 
And I think we're seeing some of that now um, with Black Lives Matter, people who haven't been strong activists in the Black community who are Black saying like, you know, maybe I've made a mistake, right? Like this, this is important. And sometimes it's easy to overlook um, or not want to take action. But at some point, like, it's too glaring that you're like, I, I have to take action. I can't not take action. So that surprised me, I guess. I yeah. didn't want to believe they were true, but maybe they're, I hope, I hope that it's like a, something that happened in the 1970s and 80s, but you know, no one in the future will ever have that experience. Yeah. Why, uh, like, like, do you have any theories to why, like why that is the way that it is? Yeah. So, you know, sometimes it's like, you can think of it positive and negative reinforcement. Um, so for me, like I do research on diversity and I'm a woman <laughs> and a person of color. And when I talk about that research in, you know, very um, white male dominated um, professor audience, I don't know if people always received it very well. They might just be like, this is like, I heard comments like this isn't mainstream. It's kind of niche, you know? And so every job talk I gave, like every time I applied for a job, I talked about my research on leadership. And I just like left out the diversity element because of positive negative reinforcement. When I talked about leadership, they're like, oh wow, this, this woman studies CEOs, that's great. Um, and I think it's the same thing that happens at work when you do things that are like pro, what, like in fact, the same woman who had the Me Too comment said, you know, she would get these applications and everyone would, there's like a woman application for, and everyone else's man, and they'd ask her, well, what do you think of the woman's application? And she didn't want to say like, um, I think it's perfect, right? Because everyone's staring at her, so she'd find some mistake. And then everyone would be like, oh, like this, you're so, so great that you caught that. And it just like makes you repeat that behavior. I also found in a study um, a few years ago that when women, do overtly support women and value diversity or people of color specifically value diversity, they're actually viewed as less competent. So they're, that's the same idea of the positive negative reinforcement, but at a broader scale, we reward women and people of color for not supporting each other. But hopefully that'll change now because I'm like, oh great, like my, this is all that I do is when I talk about diversity and then I think people see me as totally incompetent. What, uh, like, what does it look like to fight against that stereotype or fight against that belief? Well, I think the biggest thing that I found for those, um, for women who were seen as, I call them shepherds or people of color who were shepherds, they were out like um, specifically supporting other women and people of color is to be really transparent with what you're doing. Because if you know, now we all know that if I, suggests that I'm going to promote a woman, everyone's going to like raise an eyebrow. Like, oh, really? That's the candidate you chose? The woman candidate? And so it requires, and like, they're wrong. You know, it's the best candidate, but it doesn't matter. The point is, it's making you less effective if people are thinking that. So you have to go into those conversations armed with data and explain, these were the criteria. This is why this person's the best. And these are why the other candidates are not and quantify it. So people can't have those doubts 
about you, but then also about the people that you're promoting or mentoring or sponsoring um, to combat that. I guess it's like a stereotype, right? To combat the stereotype. Yeah. What does it look like to, to continuously inclusify? Because I imagine part, part of the temptation or part of uh, whether it's intentional or not um, could be, well, hey, I've done that and <laughs> I'm good. But it's, but it's a continuous process. It's something that you need to continue to do. What are, what are some things that you've seen people set in place that, that help them just make it not a one-time thing, but something that just continues and lives on? Yeah, I think make tying numeric goals and um, to the outcomes, I think helps a lot like that. I'll say Accenture had the, had a goal of having gender parity in their company in the United States, and they achieved that goal. So they're not done, right? And then their next goal is um, global gender parity. And now they're setting goals, I think in July, they'll set goals for um, racial parity in the company. So it's like, you have to keep, you met your goal, but now what's the next goal? If you want to improve diversity by 15% and you get there, it's like, are you, if you're still below um, what your aspiration would be, you have to put in a new goal and come up with new ways. And then the other thing I'd say is like, even in my lifetime, the way we think about diversity has changed so much. And so I think you can never be done because the way we define diversity is continually changing. And what is important to us, like I say over the last, I don't know, maybe 20 years, um, I feel like people are much more attentive to the LGBTQ community and organizations are really investing in um, pride and other programs and ERGs to support their LGBTQ community. I don't think that was true before. So maybe there'll be more, you know, I imagine the world's going to continue to change and the types of things that we focus on will continue to change. And so to think you're done, be like the same idea of you have a business strategy and you're never going to change it. Yeah. Uh, I want you to think back to before you started this work and not even just with Inclusify, before you started your, your research and your work into diversity and leadership, but think of yourself today, how, and this may be a, a big question, how, what's the difference that you've seen in yourself? Oh gosh. Okay. So before I started studying leadership and made my first study on um, <clears throat> diversity on gender, what I did in college. So that was over 20 years ago. Okay. A long, long time ago. But um, I, I think the biggest thing is I was definitely one of those people who was fearful of being seen as like the woman who supports women. Like I didn't want to study diversity because mm -hmm. I, I knew that people would not take me as seriously. And so I, I'm like, I'm going to study leadership in fact, and no diversity, like, nope, nope, not going to do it. But every study that I did I found gender differences and I found um, racial differences and biases and um, the requirements for women to get a promotion were higher than men and the behaviors that affected, uh, they were positive for men, like being really assertive, were negative for women in terms of their promotability. And so it was like only under duress because I couldn't, I'm like, well, I have to, I can't do the research unless I like actually figure these things out because it doesn't make sense to report these main behaviors like leaders should be assertive when it's like unless you're a woman right that's 
half the population. So I needed to focus on them. Um, and then over time, you know, I don't know if it's because seeing the injustices made me like, okay, I don't care if people take me seriously or not, I have to do this. Or if it's times have changed or if it's like maybe having tenure, cause now they can't fire me for anything like studying diversity, they can fire me for some stuff, but like, it's hard for me to believe that I ever felt that way. And I think back then it would have been hard for me to believe that I could ever not feel that way, like not feel so insecure about my position that I would like shy away from feeling like I could just support diversity in the way I wanted to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, uh, do you remember what the turning point was for you? Um, well, I mean, I'd say there's a few, there's like lots of, um, I think there were a few different points at which I said, okay, this is just what I'm going to do. And, you know, some of it was in this research related area of like, you know, I did this study that really uncovered how our gender expectations create different leadership expectations. And I like invested a lot in that paper. It was a very like high profile paper. And that was a big shift because I'm like, okay, people can take this seriously. Um, but then I'd say the other big shift was in my own college and university uh, where I created a class called Women in Business. And this class isn't that old. I probably did it four or five years ago. And it, basically because in if you read a business textbook or in fact if you read a business book like a pot management book like mine they're almost universally written by men and almost all the examples are men like if you flip through the ceos you will not find this in inclusify but in most books it's like a big story of men um which makes sense if you look at history but what that doesn't do is provide good role models mm -hmm. for women and so i created this class that was just focused on having women and women of color come in and talk to a small cohort. It was first 20 and now we have like 80 um, students about being a woman leader and talking about their experiences. Maybe, you know, some of them say there's challenges. Some of them are like, I've never seen a challenge. I, you know, it's always been great for me being a woman. But the point is that they get to see all these different examples and realize that women leaders are a thing. There's lots of them. They're varied. You can see yourself in at least one of these leaders by the end of the semester. And creating that class, even though it's like small, you know, it's now 80 students a year, made me realize so deeply how I can affect change. It was just like, even if it's just a few people, like setting that inspiration and expectation for women that they and women of color, my class is always very diverse, um, can and will be leaders of the future. I think it's super powerful. And now like I'm never going back because <laughs> it's like such a great feeling. And I have, I also have a daughter and a son and I want them to live in a world that is better than the world that we lived in. Yeah. Yep. Well, just as we're wrapping up for the person who's listening, they're like, I, I love it. I want to do something. What would be a good first step for people to living a more inclusifying life, building a more inclusifying business or workplace? I think start with empathy. I mean, just start to, by trying to get to know people. It is a very 
like cheap and easy um, action to take and talking to people who are different than you or just talking to people can have a huge impact on their day and their life. And I think doing that, if, if you want to talk about race and the issues surrounding Black Lives Matter, I think that's extremely important. If you have colleagues of color, um, recognize that they're not just okay. And I think you, we should be asking, um, you know, tell me about how you're feeling. How can I help? I would like to understand your experience, even though I know like, so for me, like I'm Mexican woman, I can't understand the experience of being a black woman right now in this moment, but I can try and I can offer empathy and someone to listen. Um, and so it can everyone else. And even if you feel awkward about it, like get over yourself and just do it because it is important. And it's one small step that can have a big impact. Yeah. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I know people are going to want to continue to learn from you and pick up the book. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Yeah, thanks. Um, so I have a website, drstephjohnson.com um, and inclusivebook.com where you can get the book. You can also get it on HarperCollins website or honestly anywhere that books are sold um including amazon and on online retailers you can get it at target <laughs> a friend of mine snapped a pic of the book at barnes and noble and i'm like barnes and noble's open That's <laughs> um but anywhere you want to go but on my website there's like uh the first chapter is on there you can read it for free if you just want to get a little more info but you're not ready to buy the book um take the inclusifier.com assessment it's pretty fun it's like I love taking self-assessments just to learn more about myself. It's just like, it's free. You don't have to like provide any information. It's just a fun way to learn more about yourself. Yeah. Well, I highly recommend it. And thank you so much for just being on the podcast. And thanks for all the work that you're doing of just helping, helping leaders just make a more inclusive workplace. Thank you. Thanks for having me and for asking such great insightful questions. Stephanie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm so grateful that you would decide to spend a few minutes just talking with me and helping me and helping all of us who are listening continue to learn and grow whenever it comes to this topic of inclusifying, especially our organizations. And if you're listening, I highly recommend that you go and pick up Stephanie's new book, Inclusify. It's a great read. And as I mentioned before, it is very practical as well, which is incredibly helpful whenever it comes to talking about things like this, because sometimes it's just very difficult to figure out, okay, so, so what can I do? What, what are the actions for me? And this book does an incredible job of laying out a good action plan, no matter kind of where you fit on, on the spectrum of your overall feelings about, um, about this topic and what your role might be. 
And if you've enjoyed this episode, I highly recommend that you either subscribe to this podcast and whatever podcast player you're using, whether you use Overcast or Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, or if you're like me, I've recently moved to Spotify, just go and hit that follow button and you'll be sure to never miss a conversation that we have on any of these episodes. And boy, do we have some great conversations that are coming up over the next several weeks as well. Now, also, I want to thank Sam Massey for providing the music for this podcast and just making it sound great each and every single time. And also, I want to remind you that uh, if you have any audio or video needs, hit up Sam for any of those things. Now, thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Caleb Mason Show. I'm so grateful that you would choose to spend a few minutes of your day here with me because I know how valuable your time is and I greatly appreciate it. Now, my name is Caleb Mason and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.